This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 472. Talked about jujitsu, but you get put in a tough spot and you go, hey, you know, what do I do? Do I roll over or do I find a way to, you know, get out of this and get back on top? So I've always prided myself on like, I don't care if like what happened. It was my responsibility. People, they don't really know anything about the property. They invested in me because they trusted me. So I have to find a way to get out of this and turn this around. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? It's Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co-host, Mr. David Green. What's up, David? Didn't have a good nickname for you. Sorry. That's okay, because I'm having a really good day. I, uh, I think I found someone that I'm going to hire to be the portfolio manager for my properties, and I'm going to start Fancy. scaling up short-term rentals, so I'll be getting into that game a little bit. And um, a few other good hires mm-hmm. have come in. So someone was asked me the other day, I just closed on that big Minnesota property and they were saying like, how, how is it? How do you feel about it? And I said, at this point, I'm just so much happier if I get a good person than I am if I got a good property because one person can manage a hundred mm. properties that uh, like that's the stuff that gets me excited now. Yeah. People are the asset. Yes. That's a great way to put it. All right, man. Well, very, very cool. Yeah. The short-term rental thing. I just closed on my uh, condo and uh, begin to be doing some rehab stuff on it here. Not- oh, the one we went and looked at or that complex? Yep, same place. So we're both short term. We're, we're playing with Maui. We'll have to coordinate our uh, our attack a little bit. So yes, it'll be fun. All right. Well, with that said, let's get to t- today's quick, quick tip. tip. All right, if you're listening to the show when it comes out, it's uh, coming out in the springtime, uh, which means there are probably a number of preventative maintenance things you should be doing on your rental properties if you own rentals. And I know a lot of you are going, Ugh, like the kind of like cringing right now because you know you need to do it and you haven't done it. So, uh, in fact, I am even going to put a list on the show notes page. You go to biggerpockets.com slash show 472. Again, biggerpockets.com slash show 472. There'll be a link there to a blog article called 27 interior and exterior preventative maintenance tasks for rentals. I want you to take that list. I want you to print it out and I want you to go through and do a a half of them right now uh, over the next couple of weeks. You don't have to personally do them. You can hire someone if you want to, but get it done because that is going to extend the life of your property. And a lot of us just go years without thinking of this stuff, but it's better to do it a little bit at a time. So there you go. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. 
Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. Today's guest is Nick Lamagna. It's like lasagna, he told me to say, but not quite. Uh, and he is a awesome dude. He's got a podcast, but he's also a legit real estate investor. He's done over a hundred deals, uh, routinely makes six figures on a single deal, like on a wholesale or a wholetail. You'll learn more about that later. So he talks about how he's done that. He talks about investing at a distance. We spent a long time talking about how to invest at a distance, whether it's flipping, burr, rentals, uh, wholesaling. You can do all that at a distance. If you just follow some of the key principles he brings up today, Uh, We talk a lot about failure, uh, some of the problems that he's had where he's lost money, and the lessons he learned that can make sure you don't make those same mistakes. So that and more to come. And with that said, I think it's time to get into our interview with Nick. But hey, real quick, if you're watching this on YouTube, do me a favor. Don't forget to click that little thumbs up button to let the world know this is a good video. Leave a comment below for Nick if you have questions. He'll be checking the comments. And subscribe to our YouTube channel. That helps us uh, you know, reach more people. The more people subscribe, the more people YouTube is like, oh, they're a good channel. And uh, we want you to be aware of all the good content coming out on our channel as well. So hit that little subscribe button. Uh, I think that's all I got. So with that said, let's move on. Nick, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast, man. How you doing? Doing great, man. I'm really excited to be here. Big fans of both of you guys, and I appreciate everything you guys do. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks, man. Well, I got to tell you, so I was on Nick's podcast. What's your podcast called? Give it a shout out. The A-Game Podcast. All right, the A-Game Podcast. And I was on there, and I and you did this intro. You read this intro for me, <laughs> and it was the best intro anybody in, in any podcast I've ever been on has ever done. It was so good, and I was like, I felt like I was at an MMA fight, and like I was fighting. It was awesome. So ever since then, nice. I've been trying to replicate. So if people have noticed an uptick in our intros, that's that's all because of you. So thank you. I, I appreciate that. I'm glad I could have some sort of positive impact. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, with that said, let's get into your real estate. I mean, we can talk MMA and black, uh, you know, black belt jujitsu, all that all day long. But I want to know about how you got into real estate investing. What was your life before that? And how did you decide, yeah, I'm going to do real estate? You know, it was um, like most things in my life. I think it all kind of fell by accident. I was uh, screwing around, just went to college to kind of hang out and drink and party with my friends. And then uh, I didn't really have much of a purpose. And then after September 11th, I went upstate to college to SUNY Albany and upstate New York, and I decided I want to switch my major to criminal justice, and I want to do something that's going to serve some sort of purpose for, you know, like David, be a police officer. I wanted to be an air marshal, do something federal, something with counterterrorism. So I tested for everything you can think of with three or four letters, FBI, DEA, NYPD, ATF, you know, anything like that. And uh, when I graduated, there was a process to go in. So I started doing construction hoping that I would get into the Carpenter Union and help rebuild the Freedom Tower at that time. And while I was doing construction, 
I suffered uh, on faulty machinery, a permanent hand injury, and it sidelined everything. And, and I went through uh, about a year, two years of physical therapy, occupational therapy, and then all these jobs started calling me back. And they said, hey, your number's up. You know, I scored pretty high on most of these, so it should have been like an easy thing to get in. And then because of my hand injury, they made me retest. And then after all that, they disqualified me saying that there was like a 0.001% chance because of my injury, I was a liability on paper, so I would never get a job in law enforcement. So at that point, I was kind of just bumming around and depressed. I had lost my identity. I had lost what I thought my path in life was, my purpose. I had no money coming in. You know, I felt like a, a physical and emotional and financial failure. And then my mom forced me to read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is, you know, how a lot of people just start out. And uh, I saw that you can get into real estate with no experience, no money, no credit. I didn't have any of those things. So I started just going into different classes and seminars and kind of dug right in. And uh, I accidentally decided that real estate was the way I wanted to go because when that happened, everything was taken away from me. And, and I really just got to beat into my head of if I want to do something with my life, I never want to put myself in a position that if something happens to me, it's up to somebody else how I'm going to make my money and wind up kind of just digging in full time and never look back. Let me jump in real fast. Nick, do you feel like your hand injury had a big role in that feeling of I don't want to leave my life up to chance? A thousand percent. You know, it's uh, it's in, it's interesting because Looking back, there's definitely a lot of things in my life that I feel like I would have changed. And I think most people think that that would be one that I could be like, hey, I wish I didn't use that machine that day. But I think the amount of doors that it's opened for me, the way it shifted my mind. And even looking back, I, I don't, I wasn't really happy with who I was as a person and how I acted and where my morals were. I feel like it was uh, obviously a very important lesson, but I feel like it was necessary. And because of that, it shifted things and changed things that weren't even about me. I mean, you fast forward six, 12 months after I started getting into real estate, both my parents lost their jobs and there was no income coming in except for what I was doing. So, you know, there's been a lot of other people along the way that my real estate journey has helped with whatever inspiring them or helping them financially or helping get them into it. So that a thousand percent was responsible for, I, I never would have met the people in my life that are some of the most amazing people, some of my closest friends, you know, some of the greatest experiences that I've ever had. I didn't, I don't know if I would have gotten into jujitsu. I'd probably be just be a cop in New York City, miserable. I mean, who knows? It's really responsible for everything that I'm about today, that everything good in my life has come from that terrible experience. Powerful reminder too, that sometimes the things that we go through in life that we're thinking, oh, that's going to hold me back or that's the thing that's going to hurt me. Those are the things that actually lead us toward the future we were meant to have anyway. So it's a good picture of that. So what was real estate like? What was the first deal? What'd you do? You know, I was, uh, again, I was no money, no credit, no experience. And I was trying to get involved in real estate in New York City. And it was super competitive and very expensive. So for me, I felt like it was a little more... A little less risky, a little more possible if I started going into these other markets. So I started investing virtually before it was like the cool thing to do because I, I just, for my own mental belief, I said, you know what? I don't feel like I can do a $600,000 two-bedroom home on Long Island, but I do yeah. feel like I can buy a $45,000 home in Atlanta and put $25,000 in and sell it for one fifty, dollars or I could buy a $30,000 home in Detroit, put twenty five in and then refinance out. So I was trying to do the Burr strategy a lot when I first started out, but I couldn't get approved for any loans because I was on disability. So I had to go and find other people. And it was interesting because I, I, I'm always trying to find like the, the way to use things to a, to a positive, which I think, you know, any successful person does. But I had a couple of friends that were bragging. They were the, you know, the big malice at the bar all the time. I got money. I got credit. I got this. I got that. Like the, like they were members of the Sopranos. And I was like, you know what? Like <laughs> I should see if they want to fund one of my deals. And I kind of like trapped them. And I was like, Hey, you, you got this credit. You got this money. You know, you're, you're not scared of anything, right? Hey, you should sign on this deal and we'll partner and I'll do the whatever and I'll pay you. So I went 
sign up kind of starting LLCs with people that did have money and they did have credit. And then the hard money lenders would give us loans based on the LLC because now that it was part of that, it wasn't really about me. It was about the package as a whole. And I had the, the experience and the resources. So I would do the work. I would pay them either out of the refinance, out of the sale or out of the cash flow. And I wound up doing a few like, you know, again, it was, it was like at the worst time to get involved in real estate because it was right when all those anything goes types of deals were going on. But then within the six months after that, they were shutting doors on me. So I did like three deals in Vegas that they cut me a check at closing for money back. And it was all like all the stuff you would never want to do now with like the liars loans and the stated income. But I took the money that they gave me as the down payments on those houses and used them to get into what I needed to get into the the Burr properties with the hard money loans. So I had like eight deals going like that. that were three rentals and then five rehabs. And then I was going to go pull the cash out. But then all of a sudden they said, no, the economy's in the dumps now. Now we're not going to let you do a cash out refinance, but we'll let you do a rate and term. And then they started going, well, no, we're not going to let you do the rate and term anymore because, you know, you guys got money based on this LLC as a whole, but Chase Bank wants to give it based on you and you still don't have any money, any credit. So it, it was really tough and I had to do a lot of restructuring and get creative with stuff. But that's that's when I started getting into wholesaling because I had a mentor at the time and he was like, man, stop trying to keep buying properties when you're not able to pull the cash out yet, like get some cash. And so begrudgingly, I wholesaled the deal to show him that it couldn't be done and I wound up making money on it. And I just kind of <laughs> got into that and started wholesaling portfolios and that. But those initial first like eight deals were just money back at closing basic rentals and then um, some Burr properties that I got into with some uh, some credit partners, some cash down and did some rehabs on them. What was the first city that you started investing in and why'd you pick that city? Uh, you know, I think it was either Detroit I think I was doing Detroit, Vegas, and Atlanta all like right around the same time. I kind of just jumped in. But the way I was doing it was there was other people I knew that were investing in those cities. And they had given us like 10 to pick from, which actually all wound up being outstanding. That was like Kansas City and like Colorado and Denver and a lot of these markets before they were really big. So in hindsight, but... I just started picking all of them and just bombing them with offers. So because I was home on disability, I was like, I remember like eFax came out and I was like, this is going to change technology. It'll never get better than an eFax. And I was like, I can eFax offers. This is amazing. But I was putting out like two, 300 offers in each of these markets, just dealing with nothing but realtors and brokers. And they, I mean, I was getting angry letters back. People would write like curses on the contracts and fax them back to me and tell me to go screw myself. And so there was a ton of rejection, but the way I wound up actually picking the markets was because those were the ones that I caught fishing. So so I think it was just kind of like, I'm going to toss out these fishing lines as many as I possibly can in all these markets as much as I can. And I'm just going to basically see what I catch. And, and based on what I caught, I started digging in a little bit deeper and say, okay, I got one under contract here. Let's dig in. Now let's put the team together. Now let's really look at the market. Now let's see if this is something we can repeat. And that was really how I did my business until very recently was just throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what sticks and then hyper-focusing once I had something stuck. So what did the next few years look like? I mean, you started buying these properties, you said, oh, seven, oh, eight, oh, nine came. So through the recession, how did you, how did you, I mean, I, I kind of heard how you pivoted, right? So you started wholesaling a little bit. Is that what you did all through the recession till we got out of that? Or what did the next five years look like? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I, I got out of those. I negotiated some deals with the hard money lenders, which was like very interesting at the time. They were taking like pennies to just get out of the deals. Cause I guess, you know, whatever was going on with the investors they had borrowed the money from. And then I started getting into wholesaling and we started wholesaling some single family stuff. It was a lot of like cash flow properties, nothing like really big wholesale fees to write home about. And then we started, um, me and a couple of partners of mine, what we were doing was finding packages of properties and then trying to sell them off to cash buyers as portfolios. So we did a few of those, kind of got that going. And then 
you know, within, I think around like 2009 ish, maybe 2010, all of a sudden we started seeing, I remember I linked up with this guy and he's like, man, we're flipping properties all over Southern California. And I was like, but you can't flip properties. Like that's, that's not the way the market is. And they was like, no, no, no. Like things change. There's these FHA loans now. And all the people two years ago that lost their homes can basically buy the same home now for half the price that they couldn't get the loan mods on two years ago. As long as they have a 660 credit score or above, they can get in for three and a half percent down. So that really started switching it back to really pivoting and, and picking up some of these properties and just getting back into flipping for a couple of years. So I went from like trying to burr and do creative deals and then went into wholesaling and then pivoted back into flipping single family homes to get some cash and some experience back up. And then from there, like over the last three years, just transitioned into accidentally into like multifamily and some mobile home park wholesaling and some land development stuff. And uh, it's, it's been an interesting ride, but it, it's all really happened by accident, just kind of naturally falling into these deals because over the, over the years of doing so many different things and meeting so many different people, I've always just been open. And I've always just like people say, hey man, are you, would you want this? Would you look at this? Would you look at a mobile home park? And I go, well, I mean, today I'm not looking for that, but you know, send it to me, man. If it's a great deal, let me look at it. And who knows, maybe I know somebody that that's looking for it. And, and that's kind of what, what always happened was some guy would call me and say, Hey man, I don't want your portfolio. or I don't want your multifamily or I don't want your single family home. I only buy mobile home parks. And like that morning, somebody goes, Hey, I know you don't want mobile home parks, but I got one. And I'm like, well, hold, hold on, hold on. And then I kind of just like, well, I'll pair him up here and I'll do that. And you know, from there, every time I would move a property, I would just advertise it. And then you get, you know, 100, 200, 300 people that call you on it through whatever website you're posting it on. A lot of tire kickers, but you'll get five or 10 people that make solid offers with proof of funds that know exactly what you want and they give you their criteria. And now it's like, okay, well, I sold that one, but now I have nine other people that have cash that know exactly what they want for this deal. I'm going to go out and now find them those deals. And anything I negotiate past of the return that they want is profit in my pocket. So that's really been my focus is... um for the last couple of years from there is just off of one or two bigger deals. You wind up with these serious buyers of people that are going, find me another one of those. And there's a lot of money to be made there. And I feel like it's easier because instead of me just saying, Hey, this is a deal who wants it. The term a deal could mean anything. Now I have somebody that I know it's qualified. That's serious. That's giving me their exact criteria. So it gives me more of a target to go after and helps me not waste my time or theirs. I love this. I love that. The I just want to point out this, this concept that you're doing is you're finding deals, like you're doing some wholesaling in this process. And then as you like get a deal that you want to wholesale, you market it all over the internet or all over wherever you can get it. And you, you're basically building your buyer's list by doing that. And now you're able to connect with the serious people and say, what are you looking for? And now you can go out and hunt for those people. So it begins with kind of like, it begins with like you're walking in the woods with a gun. You're like, I don't know what's out here, right? And then like you find something, you find a, a, a deer, you kill it, you bring it back to the, the, the lodge and there's a bunch of guys like, well, I'm not looking for deer, I'm looking for rabbits. You're like, okay, I'm gonna go find you a rabbit. You go out there and find that rabbit. David, on a scale of one to 10, how good was that analogy? Was that pretty terrible? I feel like that was that was like a seven in my mind. It's it's good. It put an image in my mind of Elmer Fudd walking around with his little pop gun. As... <laughs> and no one wants to have the um, Yeah, nobody wants that. That was good. Uh, I thought that was really good. Yeah. But the mm, I guess okay. the, what you're getting at here is <laughs> the skills required to get a deer versus a rabbit are very similar. That it's just a different yeah. target you're looking for. You yep. maybe change a little bit about your strategy to take it down. But if you're good at one, you're probably going to be good at the other. So when you're out in the woods looking at deals, why not be able to take down different deals? I want to shift in a minute over to the larger deals, the whole, especially the wholesale and the bigger deals. I'm fascinated by that. And it's something I have not done a lot of, but like when, when we're talking like the pre 
current Nick. So when you were doing the flips and the wholesales and like the single family and the portfolios, if you had to guess how many, I mean, how many of these did you do over that, over that span of when you got started to when you got into the larger multifamily, like how, how many are we talking here? Like dozens? I, I've done definitely over a hundred total. I don't really know. There, okay. there was a, a little yeah. bit of a point that I slowed down in that transition because I was taking some beatings when the market sure. turns. So, you know, I call it like, you know, property traumatic stress syndrome from when everything kind of went <laughs> south, but then things started picking back up. But I mean, we were at one point, uh, me and a couple of my partners, we were, we had at some point like 20 at a time per month in different stages from whether they were under contract or being flipped or being sold, you know, and some fell out here and there, but we had a pretty good pipeline going of the actual like single family flips for a while in multiple different markets, which is pretty cool. But I think part of what you and I had talked about this too, but it was good for being a real estate strategy that I could say, you know what? I have, you know, three to five flips going in Delaware, three to five flips going in Pennsylvania, three to five flips go. And that's pretty cool. We can have like 10, 15, 20 flips going at a time. But then when those are done, you have to kind of rebuild. And, and I was, I was basically again, deal specific, not market specific, wherever the deal popped up is where I would go in. But as you and I were talking about really building a business, I'm starting to realize more and more that I want to build a deeper hole, not a wider hole. Because then I can, like, I don't have to keep training new realtors and training new contractors and building new teams and learning new markets and figuring out the good and the bad pockets. So that's really why I, I, I tried to pull back a little bit and restructure to focus more on one, one area for the single family homes, which is what I'm doing now in the Chicago suburbs. But while that's building, I take a lot of my time to, to really dig into some of those bigger deals. Cause that, that takes a lot more of my time, but it's, it's got a lot of a bigger payout. I enjoy it more too. Yeah, that's cool. So were all these long distance or were you doing any that where you lived? No, everything was long distance. I think we only did one flip ever in New York while I lived there and it was in upstate New York and I never even, I never even saw it. So, you know, from the beginning, it was always easier to me and, and my tendency, like everybody else, Hey, I want to do the first one in my backyard. I want to go see it. And then I'll go and I'll, no, like, you're not going to break those habits. So for me, as I was really upset when I first started investing and I realized like, I can't go see these houses every day. I can't try and do the work myself. Not that I was good with it anyway, but that wound up being a blessing in disguise because I learned to have to put processes in place to manage remote teams who knew the world was going to turn into this, you know, however many years later. So I learned to look at data and I learned to put things in place to really keep eyes on things without having to be involved in it every single day, which has helped me huge in business and in real estate now since then. So even if I did have a property that was kind of around the corner right now, I, I most likely wouldn't be taking the time to go see it or do it because it's just, you know, you have those processes in place and those systems and checks and balances like the, you know, we, we had a multifamily and it was just, I, I try and train people to do very, very basic things and have a system of checks and balances for like, can you handle the most basic of tasks? Because if you can't handle the simple stuff, you definitely can't handle the more complicated stuff. And I need to make sure you can have those details. That's smart. That's smart. So let's dive into a little bit deeper on this topic of, of long distance investing. You know, obviously David here wrote a book on it, but uh, I want to know your, like, what are the, what were the keys to success with long distance investing, whether it's flipping or whether it was rentals? Like what were those things that people, if they're listening to the show right now going, I live in New York city or I live in LA and I cannot do what I want to do here. What do they do? Give us some like step-by-step -step instructions. Communication is going to be the biggest thing. I think anytime you, you try and trick yourself into getting emotional and thinking you have a good deal just because it's out of state, it's, it's very easy to get tricked into that. And so I think having the right area is super important. So doing some diligence on that and getting some, you know, I, I try and get a lot of feedback. Same thing. I'll send out a wide net. So if I'm going to go into a new area remotely, I'm going to start reaching out to wholesalers. I'm going to start reaching out to brokers. I'm going to start reaching out to realtors. And then I'm going to just test it and see kind of what the market's doing. And again, this is a little bit 
a little bit different because of what we're doing now and people going direct to seller, but I'm just gonna gonna say, hey, I'm, I'm looking for deals. I'm looking for areas that houses are selling in under 60 days, which used to be a thing. I mean, now everything's moving, but I'll start to get their feedback because they'll open up and half of them will say right off the bat, like, it's too competitive. You're never gonna get a deal. There's nothing out there. Good luck. Did you just take some class? And like, I start to know very quick who I don't wanna work with and I'm just kind of thinning the herd. But I will wind up with like five or 10 wholesalers or five or 10 brokers or a couple of key people that are doing a lot of deals there. And they'll tell me like, hey, if you're looking for an area that things are selling in under 60 days that are at like an average price point that you can get a good conventional loan on where things are moving to middle-class buyers. You don't want to be on this side of town. You do want to be on this side of town. You don't want to be in this zip code. You want to be in this zip code. So just reaching out to local people and first off figuring out who is going to have the patience to deal with you breaking into a new market because you're going to need a lot of information, but it's all there. But I find most people are lazy or they don't want to put the work in. So when you get a couple of them that you prepare like, hey, it's going to take a little bit of time, but I'm here to stay. We're going to close some deals. I'm going to do my part. They'll start to guide you to where you want to go. And then the data will tell you if they're right. So I try and like, hey, you're the best. You guys know what you're doing. You tell me where the best place to go is. And then when they start to send me a deal, I'll say, hey, send me the comparables. And when I look at those comps, if I'm seeing that there's nothing really selling in fixed up condition in the last 30, 60, 90 days, or that the, you know, the price is like price drop, price drop, price drop. And then I look at what the conditions are and it's mostly rentals and nothing really like, I'm going to be able to tell that nobody's really buying there. Things aren't really selling at or above asking price in the last 30, 60, 90 days, which could make me think either it's a place to rent not to flip, which maybe that's what I'm looking for is a rental, or that it's maybe a place that there's high crime or, or an area I really don't want to be in. So I'll adjust it based on that and say, hey, you know what? The, the spread could potentially be here, but based on the data you gave me, things really aren't moving here. Nothing's really sold. That's like a three bed, two bath, 2000 square foot home in like the last nine months. So let's find a, a similar deal because these numbers would look good, but let's find it in an area where I can have something that I can show. And generally off of that, I'll pull a comp and say, hey, look at this house. This house is, you know, in the two zip codes over, but it's perfect. It's totally fixed up. It has all the things that it's going to look exactly like my house when it's done. You know, it rents for the amount. It's got the sale price at the amount. It's sold in 30 days. Let's look for some distressed properties within like a mile of this house. And I'll kind of guide them to where that new area is. So it just really becomes setting up communication. And the biggest thing, which I've heard you guys say a lot on this show, but giving feedback on why something works or something doesn't work and getting the same from them, you will find a handful of people that will be down for that ride with you. And when you guys find it, it'll click at some point. That's kind of what it is. It's it's a lot of just making those calls and those connections until you guys really know how to communicate and say the same thing. And at some point when you go, yes, this house, one, two, three house street, this side of town, this condition, this area, this is what I want. They're going to go, oh, Brent, why didn't you say so from the beginning? And it's like, well, that's what I was trying to get to. But now we're on the same page and now you've trained them to just go out and do that. And that's kind of what I do is I go out and I try and just find a handful of people who can go out. I can get on the same page with, train them exactly for what I'm looking for. And then I can sit back and they'll just feed me the deals and I just need to verify stuff and put out all offers. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So having the right team, having that communication, the open communication is so important. A lot of people, times people I think just rely on like, oh, they're a real estate agent or they're a wholesaler or they're a whatever. They'll be fine. They're professionals. But I know like David, I mean, I'd love to have you kind of speak to this as well. You're, you're an agent. Somebody contacts you, let's say from out of state and they're like, hey, David, go find me a deal. And then you don't hear from them anymore. It just, it's just kind of a mess. But if they can give you, I'm assuming a little bit more like clear criteria. So what do you want, David, from an agent's perspective, if somebody contacts you, what what kind of ideal buyer, an out-of-area buyer are you looking for that you'd be excited to put with your team and to work with and to help them find something? 
You want somebody who already knows what they want or is willing to work with you to figure it out. I think what a lot of people do when they reach out to an agent is they're like, I heard that this is a good area to invest in. I'm interested in it. What that really means is tell me everything you know about the area. Make me feel like I should go forward with this and then send me a bunch of information. Give me a free education. That's the wrong method to take. Uh, another thing would be someone who has a pain point. Like that's really what motivates people to do anything. We t- Nick talked a little bit about when he hurt his hand, it ch- changed his life. It stopped him from taking the path he wanted to go into. There was some pain associated with, I want to take a career in this direction and I can't. So I'm going to make another path for myself, which is what led to this podcast. If somebody wants to buy rental property, but they don't have a pain point, they're very comfortable where they are. They're not going to do it. That hurdle is just going to feel like too much to get over unless there's a, I got to get out of my job. I got to make something happen. I got to get some momentum going. I, I have to do something. Otherwise, I'm in pain. So when I'm talking to somebody who comes from out of state, if they're like, yeah, tell me about the market. And the minute they hear that houses get multiple offers, they're like, I don't want to deal with that. Well, then you're just not in enough pain. Okay. <laughs> but I know a lot of people said that in 2020 and legit where I live, houses have gone up $150,000 in a lot of areas, right? They're in pain now. So uh, I would say that's a big thing. And and it goes both ways. When you're talking to an agent, if that agent doesn't have any kind of pain, they don't really need your business. They're not that they just they wanted a business card and a fancy picture to put on there. And they want to feel like they have a, a career, but they're really not motivated to make it happen. That's the wrong agent to work with. You want an agent that's like, no, I want to be the best. I want to be the top. I want to help more people. I want to get a better deal. I want to go find you the best deal that I can, because if I don't, you don't think that I'm good. And that would put me in pain. So just in general, I think there's some wisdom in when you're developing a relationship with somebody else. If there isn't already some pain in the situation they're at currently, they're usually not going to take the steps that they need to to get over that. All right. Well, Nick, back to you again. So you, you did all the flipping, did some wholesaling, did all that stuff on the smaller deals. Why did you make the transition into the larger properties? You know, I think like anybody else, you, you get into it and then you start to realize that you, you, you always think the next thing you're getting into is the thing that's going to get you more money with less time. And then you realize that it's a bigger deal now. So now I'm, I'm, I'm looking for more, but I remember thinking like, Hey, why would I go get 30 houses when I can get one building with 30 pe- people in it? And now I can hire one babysitter. All my kids live under <laughs> one roof and it's just, you know, I can heavy focus on that because I think a big, a big problem that I've had and had is trying to do too many things at once. And then I wind up dropping the ball a little bit on everything. And that starts to cost money. And when we first started looking into multifamily, we were like, you know what? Like, this is something that I don't need to be spread across all these different things because there's enough money coming in as the cash flow or the refinance or the sale on these that I can put kind of all my eggs into one or two of these. And that's all I can focus on for the year. And that was really exciting to me to say, like, I don't have to be looking for different deals in different markets and talking to all these different teams and all these different realtors. So that was the first thing was just the the quality of life for being able to kind of just focus on one or two things and really be kind of dialed in on that was a nice change of pace. And then the numbers on it were just exciting to me. So that was the thing of like, hey, man, like you can you can stabilize a multifamily asset and sell it or refinance it in a year and make just as much as you would maybe flipping, you know, five or six or seven properties. And you do have the option to potentially take that cash out, still hold the asset and still have the money to go play with and buy another one. And that I liked. And I, and I like when things get creative there. And the other thing that I thought was was interesting was the value on it became a lot more straightforward because it's less subjective, I found, than single family where you hear a lot of like, well, you know, a single family value, it's, it's more of an art than a science. I found that 
valuing multifamily, especially for people that were like going to lend or that were going to buy it from you. It was really all about math. And I was like, well, this is something I can do on a calculator. And there's not all this interpretation. Like it is what it is. So it doesn't matter what I think and feel about it. It's a deal or it's not a deal based on if the calculator goes green or red. So that definitely excited me about it initially that got me involved. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say it quite that way. And I really like that, that commercial real estate is much more, when I say commercial, for those who don't know, I'm just talking about anything like larger than five units could be a warehouse, could be a retail center, could be a, a apartment complex. But it is value, like it, it is much more objective with the math. It's like, this is what the math says is going to be. Now, this is what the rent in this type of property rents for because, hey, this is what the 80 other two-bedroom, one-bathroom apartments in this area rent for. So you can get, a, I feel like you can get a little bit better idea of, you know, of what a property is worth and what it could be worth and what you can do with it, uh, which is why, like, I hired, you know, a few, like, super brainiac, you know, underwriters, uh, you know, one of them, Walker, who runs my whole company now, like, he's just a whiz when it comes to math. It's because, like, it's a math game that we're playing. So that's cool. So what was your first uh, multifamily? Like, what was your first venture into that? So we bought a uh, 66 unit and it was... Both of the deals that we initially bought were uh, seller financing 90%. We had to put 10% down and then they needed some heavy stabilization. So um, I borrowed some private funding for it, um, jumped into those deals and uh, had a, a mentor on those deals that was going to help me talk to talk me through the whole thing, walk me through everything. So I was going to. I was going to kind of learn on the job and then we were going to split some profits up. And it turned out that the guy really did not know what he was doing. So I had borrowed money very confidently from people thinking that these things were a slam dunk based on what I had been told. And then, you know, the phone rings one day and the guy's like, Hey, I know these were supposed to be getting stabilized, but I haven't been doing anything. And now like the sewer lines about to collapse and the water's about to get shut off and I don't have any money. So, you know, good luck. So that, that was awesome. And, uh, yeah, ugh, you know, be, because of that, um, it really, it caused me to focus on, and, you know, like anything else, you know, we talked about jujitsu, but you get put in a tough spot and you go, Hey, you know, what do I do? Do I roll over or do I find a way to, you know, get out of this and get back on top? So, you know, I, I've always prided myself on like, I, I don't care if like what happened. It was my responsibility. People, they don't really know anything about the property. They invested in me because they trusted me. So I have to find a way to get out of this and turn this around. So, I mean, I really, again, just with my back up against the wall, dug in and figured out how to start to get those numbers set, find out what the real things were, get things back on track, figure out where we went wrong. And, and the process um, of learning from that was was like priceless you know the, the things i picked up the contacts i made the way i learned to really look at the ins and outs of what could go wrong in multifamily was a huge eye-opener and that's why you know th there was weeks that you have to cut a thirty forty thousand dollar check to catch up on whatever went when went crazy or the sewer line popped or so um it, it was very stressful but it was uh you know le lessons and and things that i've learned from them that were i've taken into deal after deal after deal after that and that that's part of what you know, I wind up selling them off, getting them somewhat stabilized and passing them off to another investor, but making enough that I could pay back the loans on them, get the experience and kind of be in the clear and make everybody square. So I, I didn't turn a ton of profit on them. But again, the experience I got on it and the relationships I made now led me into other properties and people, you know, they they only hear the good stuff. But when people start to hear, you know what, hey, these deals went bad. What happened when they went bad? What did you do? What happened to the lender? It's like, man, I got in there. I, I busted my butt and I found a way to get them paid back. And that's when they come back and now they want to reinvest. So because of the problems that I had going through that and getting left, because there's been tons of times over my life that I paid for mentors and the mentors just didn't really pan out and they didn't do what they say they were going to do. But it hadn't been 
that catastrophic on a, on a multi-level where it's like hundreds of thousands of dollars that are coming in and going out. So that really made me feel responsible when I was selling properties to other people of like, Hey, I know you, you might not know, but here's the things you should look out for. Here's the things that nobody helped me with. And that's kind of how it started separating myself from other people that were selling things was all the things that I never got from people that were supposed to be helping talk me through that process and give me the realistic things that could go wrong or right. I started doing for other people and saying, Hey, I'll help you screen these teams. I'll help you with some due diligence. I'll help you with some area information. I'll, you know, I'll line up some contractors, I'll interview them and then I'll pass them off to you to make the difference. So, um, again, you know, pros and cons and life lessons from everything, but they've all gone great since those two, but those were uh, very stressful times, but very meaningful in my, in my path in general. From the deals that went wrong, from anything that you've done that's ever like gone wrong, especially with multifamily or where it didn't, you didn't make the profit you thought you were going to, what were the m- mistakes or what were the lessons that you learned that could help people listen to the show right now going, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make that same mistake. Definitely. Well, one of them is just don't, don't trust anybody. Trust, but verify everything that you get mm. because, you know, I definitely would have done more homework, but I've always been a, a little bit um, naive on that level, I think, of just trusting people and thinking that they're going to be honest and they're telling me the best of what they did. But I would definitely look into whoever you're going to get partnered with, making sure that you have a good track record of what they have actually done and how they've handled things when they went wrong as well as right. Because if they're going to tell you things have only been great, that's maybe not somebody that I really want to do things with. But over communication is another thing. So I have something called the the rule of 72 hours that I use that no matter which team member it is, I never want to go more than 72 hours without communicating with that person. And I think that that was a big thing that I was getting told when those buildings were getting fixed. Oh man, like we're in there this week, we're getting this done, we're getting that done, we're renting out this place, you know, we're fixing this unit up and not really getting solid pictures and videos and communication every few days to make sure that those things were really happening. And if you do those things, and again, I think part of it for me was just lack of uh, emotional maturity at the time that I was having a hard time with it anyway, and I just didn't want more bad news. So you tend to kind of blind that out and go, you know, I don't, I don't really want to ask what's going on because maybe I don't really want to know. And I think getting past that and understanding that like you do want to know, you do want those problems because that's what real estate is. And when you learn to just take them head on and address them and fix them, that's where there's a lot of money to be made and they're going to pop up. It's just a matter of how are you going to handle that? So I would say teach anybody listening to get a solid line of communication and make it how you like to communicate. So if you're a phone call person, make sure you're working with people that are okay getting on the phone. If you don't like to get on the phone, you only like the text message, make sure you're getting teams in place to help you because like there's that other thing too, that somebody there might be trying to do a good job on the house, but they're not relaying what's going on or the things that they need from me because we're not communicating under the same mediums that they want. So um, constant communication with proof. Not just telling me things are done, but if you did those three units, again, every day I want pictures, I want videos, I want data showing at the end of the week which units got rented, which didn't. Why didn't they get rented? Why didn't they get fixed up? And having conversations to figure out, is it something I'm doing wrong? Is it something they're doing wrong? Or is it something with the property we're doing wrong? And really just having solid open communication on how to solve those problems. Um, And I would say definitely another thing is the biggest lessons I got from all of this is, um, and I think I've heard you guys say this a bunch of times, but be slow to hire and be quick to fire. Not firing people quick enough, not getting problem tenants out of there quick enough, not getting bad crooked property managers out of there quick enough, leaving maintenance guys on who are not getting the job done and you find that they're like doing drugs or sleeping in the units and just, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm afraid if I fire them, things might get worse or what if I get, and like that has to just go. And I think learning to identify these key things right off the bat of, you know, it's been two weeks now, this person's not working out. I'm not gonna wait until this becomes something 
like detrimental and terrible. And this person like has now given my phone number out to all the crazy tenants in the building, which <laughs> happened. I'm going to fire them and move on and get somebody in there. And anytime I've done that and I've gotten the toxicity or the poison or the problems out fast, it has drastically changed the way I handle the deal from there on out and it's turned into a positive experience. This is so convicting to me because you know I bought this property a few years ago in, in uh, Cincinnati and the deal was still, it was a good deal. I still think it was a good deal, but I hired a couple of property, man- like one property manager, then another one. And I did exactly what you said. I didn't... W- I didn't want to talk to them. I talked to them like once a month, like, and I didn't want to deal with it. I had a lot of stuff going on out here in Hawaii. I was moving to Hawaii and all that stuff. And so I just kind of let it go. And I just hoped that it was going well. And that never is a good strategy, right? Like I, I, today I say oftentimes like we will move at the speed at which we meet, like open door capital. I say that a lot. Like we'll meet at the speed we meet. I don't like meetings, but the more we meet and like have a good meeting, the more we move forward, the more we do things. And so then I just never met with the people. So a month would go by. Finally, I would talk to him and I didn't want to talk to him, but I finally get on the phone with the property manager and like they hadn't done anything in a month. I mean, nothing changed. They said they were going to get a unit turned over. They didn't. But if we were talking every 72 hours or even like every day, like you were saying, like, you know, call them at 9am. What are you going to do? To, I, what, 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 what are you going to get done today? I think I would have gotten a lot more done then. So it just, I kind of buried my head in the sand at that, in that point. And uh, I ended up selling that property to uh, another bigger pockets member, actually the agent who brought the deal to me. He's like doubled the value of that property in the past <laughs> like two years, like like hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity. Like he'll he'll become a millionaire off that one deal. And I'm like, good for him because he could handle it. But when I was trying to do a long, especially long distance, it just, it didn't work because I wasn't there. And I didn't have the skill set at the time to be able to take down a long distance. I didn't want to do it. So yeah. Yeah, all that stuff, super, super important stuff. Because I think we can learn almost more from the the deals that go wrong than the deals that do right, right? So hearing from other people's mistakes, like, yeah, solid, solid stuff. So, all right, I want to move toward, uh, you you mentioned wholesaling the bigger deals, the larger, like, larger, like, what is that? First of all, can you explain, for those who never heard even the term wholesaling, what is that? And then how does that apply to these larger deals? What kind of profits are possible? How do you make that happen? Sure. So um, the wholesaling in general is you're, you're getting a deal, a good deal under contract. And instead of you actually closing on it, you're leaving some meat on the bone, whether it's equity or cash flow or, or upside value potential. And you're selling it off to another investor who basically wants to put the time and the work in, like you were saying to that other guy that, you know, you picked it up, you sold it to them, you made a little bit, they made a lot. So that's the, the premise of wholesale is kind of buy low, sell low and leave it for somebody else that can make the, 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 the bulk of the profit on it at the end. What I'm doing in multifamily and in mobile home parks is the same principle. It's just that the numbers are so much bigger because the end user has you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in profit versus like an on a flip, maybe it's 30, 40,000. The, the difference there were just so much, uh, so much, so much bigger and beefier. And again, it, it happened by accident. I, I put a couple of these properties up for sale and then I started just paying for some extra advertising, boosting posts, putting stuff on LoopNet. And then you start to get these prospect lists of hundreds and hundreds of people who call you that are interested in them. And again, a lot of them are not serious or they're jokers or it's never going to be the right deal. They want unrealistic returns, but you do wind up with five or 10 of them. And I remember that just being like, man, like five or 10 people that want exactly this type of deal or have no, now told me the type of deal that they want. And I know that they're serious just based on the, the way the offer was structured or how they communicate with me. Like you start, like you said, rock stars, no rock stars. So you start to be able to tell quick, like this person knows what they're doing. This person's serious. If I can get them what they're looking for, they're going to perform. They're going to close on it. So. You know, for, for instance, the, 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 the Arkansas deal we're doing now, I think we have it. it it's a smaller one. Cause you know, there's people that are like, Hey, I want to get into multifamily, but I only have single family money. So 
We have it under contract for 250 from the seller, and I have it to, to close actually this Friday to another buyer for 325. I'm sorry, 275 and 325. So there's a $50,000 net on there. And, um, you know, it's, it's the same type of thing where people go, well, I'm scared. Like, but, you know, I mean, well, why would you buy the single family home when look what you can do on the multifamily? And here's the things I can do for you. So it's like, I can help line up the title company. I can help you, you know, I'll get you three contractors, three maintenance guys, three property managers. I'll give you my opinion of them and then you can pick the one you want. So just making that a little bit less scary has made people want to gravitate towards coming to me and saying like, Hey, can you find me a deal? So. On the wholesale side, I just find out what do they want? Like, what's a realistic cap rate that they want? What's a realistic average per door that they want in the cash flow? Or like, what are they looking to refinance out? Or what do they want to make when they sell it? And then I just look at it and say, is this something I can actually get them? Because, you know, if somebody's like, man, I want something in an A-class area. I want a 15 cap when I buy it. And I want an up. Like, it's never going to happen. But when you get somebody that's going, hey, you know what? Like, that deal that you had, if I can get something that looks just like that, I'm good. And then you can go out and you can negotiate that. So... You know, that last one that we're just closing on Friday was like a $50,000 net. And then there's another one closing in a week or two. And it's a mobile home park in Florida. It's about 18 units. And, you know, I knew that the guy was basically looking for something that was going to stabilize around the nine cap. I knew he had a few hundred grand to put into it. And I know he wanted something that had a little bit of value potential and it had some cash flow in place. So he wasn't doing like a heavy value add that when he bought it, he was going to be negative for four or five or six months. So this one kind of hit all those marks. And based on that, you know, I, I set them up and I asked them very upfront, like, hey, well, if you don't have, like, how much cash do you have? Because you might be looking at a mobile home park or a multifamily that's two or 300 grand. You don't realize that we can set you up with a lender with your situation. You can put 25% down and now we can get you into a million dollar building that's going to make you a lot more money. And that's kind of what we did is, is we just reverse engineered it for, okay, I know what I can get you approved for. Let me go out and find that. And at 800,000, this deal made sense for that, for, for what I had it for. And I could, market to him and literally just run all the finances and say, Hey, at 900,000, this deal gives you everything you want. So, you know, I had it under contract with the the seller for 800. I'm selling it to him for 900. I'll make a hundred thousand dollar fee on that. And he's getting a great deal on all the numbers that he wanted or checking out. So it works for everybody that I made some money. He's going to make more money. And the seller who sold it to me, I don't know what they're making, but it doesn't matter to me. Everybody's happy in the deal. This is so a couple of things I want to point out here. First of all, when we think wholesaler, David, like when you think of like a, a reputation of most wholesalers, it's not great, right? Like what comes to mind when we think like most wholesalers that are out there, right? They just want the, they just want the sale. They want to make some money. They want to get on with it, right? I think the same thing. And most of them, they don't know what they're doing. They offer you no help. Their numbers are all over the place. They're irresponsible. Like that's like the reputation that a lot of wholesalers have. So the opposite, like Nick, what you're doing is you're like, you're saying like, let me walk you through this. Let me find out your real pain point. Let me find out your real problem. Let's explore different possibilities. Let me get you set up with some property managers. Let me get you set up with some contractor interviews. Let me hold your hand and help you through the entire process. I just want people to take note of that, the different approaches. I don't think anybody's going to look at Nick and say, oh yeah, that guy just wanted to make a quick buck and he was out of here. Like you, you made a reputation for yourself as somebody who's going to Walk, you know, maybe on a, on a $10,000 house in Detroit, maybe you can get by with just being a, you know, a jerk wholesaler and just like throwing, you know, just trying to take some money. But if you want to make a, a lasting career or good money or get into the larger wholesale fees and larger wholesale deals, like I think that copying Nick's model is a really smart move. So Nick, what do you say though to when you're wholesaling larger deals? What do you, first of all, I want to know what you're saying. Actually, let's start with this one. How are you finding them? And I want to go into how you're talking with the seller. Do they know you're wholesaling? Like what, how's that? But first let's go, how are you finding these commercial properties to, to wholesale? 
It's been really interesting because on the, on the residential side, I've gone deep into, you know, SMS and text and cold calls and RVMs and, and like hitting the list and all that stuff. But on the commercial side, it's been strictly relationship based. So I'm in different masterminds with people. And, you know, again, just from years of traveling and just telling people, hey, send me whatever you got. And then social media, same thing. The deals have just kind of come to me. So, you know, you you sell a deal for somebody and I'll post that like so the, like this new mobile home park they came through. When I sold another mobile home park in South Carolina, I forget what we made on that one. I think it was like maybe another like 50,000, something like that. But we sold it and I, I made a couple of posts in some groups like, hey guys, here's a deal we just did. Here's the money we made on it, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then there's always people that either say, hey, I'm looking for deals like that too. Can you find them? But then there's also a bunch of people that go, hey, I have deals like that too. Can you help me find a buyer for it like you did for yours? And then we'll JV on it. And that that's really what started happening is people went, oh, you wholesale some multifamily? Do you think you can wholesale mine? And I go, yeah, you know, send it to me. If it hits whatever from my buyer's criteria, I'm happy to give you whatever you want for it or we'll split the fee on whatever I make for it. And it's really happened organically like that. The people that see that you performed will then give you a shot to perform with their deals. And that that's really what's happened. And it's just a matter of, you know, scrubbing through because like you said, there's a lot of wholesalers out there that I'll have conversations and I'm going, Hey, I, I need to make like, you're going to talk to me because I need to make sure that this is a deal that I would do before I go give it to somebody else. And people go, Oh no, no, no. Trust me. Trust me. This is the deal. And I go, well, like, but where's the information? Like, where is the comps? Where's the, the reports? Where's that? You know, this is just what I do. You're just going to, and like they, they start to strong on you and those deals never check out. So like you said, there's a lot of them that we did have to back out of because I have to I have to go through a lot of them because people are just not honest with the numbers. They don't really know how to run the numbers. They're saying it's a certain return and it's not. But then when you scrub through and you get something that's close, I usually just go back and have a real conversation of, hey, man, what am I missing here? Like, I know you sent me this deal for my guy to want it or for it to make sense for me. I would need it at this price unless you can give me some reason of something I missed. And again, it just goes back to the communication. You know, maybe it is something I missed and it's a better deal than I thought it was. Or maybe they'll now take into consideration what I said and we can figure it out. And then I'll, I'll, it'll just be situational for, is this one still worth doing or do we want to find something else? And generally, the people that I'm getting these deals from have other deals. So like my buddy that I got that one of the mobile home parks from, he owns like six or seven or eight of them in the same area. And this is really all he does is is gets really, really good deals on them, however he gets them. And then he stabilizes them. And I have a bunch of people that are looking for ones that are kind of like half rehabbed to rehabbed. And so he's like, hey man, you moved two of them for me in the last month. Here's the other ones that are coming up. See if you can get them going before they're done. And so he kind of gives me first shot at it. And though, you know, you don't need a lot of those when you're making six figure figure paydays on them. Yeah, that's awesome, man. So let's talk a typical wholesale deal. I got a commercial property, like the one you said you made, you made a hundred thousand dollars on, right? Or you're, you're, I don't know if you, you did or you're expected to, but what does that typically take in terms of time? Like how many, how many weeks, how many months, how many days, how many, is it years that goes into this, a single deal? Like what's the time frame look like to make that? I'll say years is, is probably accurate in the fact that the things that I've been able to do now quicker have taken me years to learn the things that are important to the things that are not. But, you know, initially it, it's going to take probably a day or two for me to get all the information, run all the information through my calculators, figure out if it's a deal that makes sense, you know, do some area research, um, run some different scenarios. And then what I'll do is I'll actually put like a whole investor packet together and then I'll make a video and a Dropbox file with like all the financials that I had and I'll talk them through like, here's the deal. Here's why I think it's a deal. Here's what all these numbers mean. 
here's the things that I think are a risk to you. Here's the things I think are a benefit to you. Here's what I would do. And here's what I would need from you if you want to move forward with this. And then I basically set all that up. And then I start to send it out to those people. And I have usually one or two people in mind that that deals for, but I'm still going to go and kick it out to everybody to keep, again, growing that list and seeing who's going to come in with things. So that part, I would say, usually like a day or two is really all it takes to get that done. And then it's just a matter of like really fielding questions. So I have a great um, assistant and what she'll do is she'll start to field all the calls that come in because there's going to be people that just aren't serious, want ridiculous things. They want to daisy chain it. And she'll start to throw me the questions that come back. And based on those questions, I'll start going back to the seller. So it's, you know, an hour here, an hour there. But it becomes something you just do throughout your day that she'll call me up and she'll say, hey, you know, this person's worried. Is this in a floodplain or this person wants to see like a, T- a T24 or, or whatever? And then you, you have a little bit of back and forth. You call the seller. Hey, I have somebody interested. I think I missed this when you sent it over. Or this looks like it's a question that came up I didn't know the answer to. And then what I start to do is I keep a Word doc in that Dropbox file of frequently asked questions. And anytime something comes up from investors that they want to know that I don't have the answers to, I populate that list. So if it's somebody that like hits me up today and they go, Hey, I'm interested. They have all the things everybody else had, but they also have a whole flyer there with like 20, 30 really good questions that I didn't think to ask that will now go into every other deal after that of like, here's things you might be thinking about or wondering about. So I try and give as much upfront. So the people that are serious can say, I am serious if this checks out, let's lock in an LOI and do some due diligence. And then you can help me from there. And then again, it just becomes, you know, once they say yes, it'll it'll probably take me another day or two to start to figure out okay what are we going to do here what do you need are you going to are you going to require a walkthrough are you going to go down yourself because now i have to find uh, how to work with the seller and explain the situation. Like, who am I? What's my role? How are we going to access this property? Does the seller that you're getting it from not want the people to know? You know what I mean? So it's it's a lot of just communicating and figuring out ways to get through the hoops. But I will say there's always weird stuff on commercial that like somebody else you find out is involved that's actually the owner or actually has it under contract or you know the units really aren't rented. So working through those problems and figuring out how to just get those answers for the person that's buying him, but not involve them in all the back and forth that I'm doing to get them is really the key. So it might take me two days to find three good property managers or find a way that we can get creative and get access or put the loans together or whatever it is, but they're only going to get, Hey, this is done. You know, Monday, two o'clock, your guy can be there. Let me know if you need me to zoom and record it back. So um, it's it's hard to gauge The, the process overall will be like 60 to 90 days, but it's usually like a few days heavy up front lifting and then just, you know, an hour a day kind of throughout the process for the rest of the time. Then there's days that there's nothing, but you know, you know, as the deal comes along and it gets closer and closer to the finish line, it's little things that the lender might need, little things that the buyer might need, little things that the title company might need, but it doesn't become too time consuming at that point. Well, what I want to, I want to make this point here and I hope people are picking this up. What you're dropping here is, uh, it's not, Super, like wholesaling is not a passive activity. Like it's not like, oh yeah, I just found a buyer, found a seller, bada bing, bada boom, I'm done. Right? Like, like so, especially the larger deals. Like we found that in, in getting into mobile home parks and self storage that we're getting into and apartments that we're doing. Like there's so much more with due diligence than there ever was with, uh, with you know the single family. I mean, we did so we did a wholesale deal. I think we made mm, 150 thousand, maybe a hundred thousand, something like that, on a wholesale deal uh, last year. Um, it was a, it was a mobile home park that was, we, we 
put under contract with the intention to buy it, found that it's some things that we didn't, that didn't fit our model perfectly. And so we're like, well, we could let them go and just back out. But we're like, what if we tried to wholesale it? So we did. We found another buyer. We talked to a bunch of people. We ended up helping them through the whole due diligence process. At the end of the day, I think what we, we calculated is we made about $9 an hour. Like the <laughs> amount of work that we put into this deal, making a hundred, like it was like not, it was like terrible. Like we made like, cause I mean, just hundreds of hours went into fit all these little things over the course of about three months. And so I don't want to say that to scare anybody, but I want people to have a realistic expectation. If you want to do this, you're getting paid because of the value that you bring. I mean, that's just the, how economies work, right? So you're getting paid because you're dealing with all of that crap. Now, the seller's going to deal with their crap. The buyer's going to deal with yours. But you get to be the therapist in the middle sometimes. And that's uh, that's a lot of fun, too. So uh, I, I think that's just a good reminder, just that it it is not overnight success. It's not you're just going to start making six-figure profits in 90 days starting tomorrow. But the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel is that it does work. Like, you can find good deals. Now, how do you talk with sellers? I mean, are, do they know? that you're a wholesaler, that you're going to help bring them a buyer? Why are they just not listing it with a commercial broker? Why would they talk to you? And then well, what's that process look like? Yeah, you? you know, most of the the ones that we've been doing have been coming from other guys that are either picking them up and mid-rehabbing them or they're under contract with them. So they're dealing directly with the seller. And I'm usually dealing with my point of contact that bought me the deal. Okay. So I don't have to deal with them directly a lot of the times, um, which is nice. They're kind of handling a lot of that. So, you know, but one thing I actually thought was amazing from you guys last week is it clicked is like, I don't work for any of them. I work for the deal. You know, I thought that was like such a genius thing that you guys dropped in that. And that's really the kind of way I look at it is, you know, it, it's if I'm dealing with somebody that's come through one of my masterminds or a business guy, like my friend who's doing the mobile home park, the guy understands real estate. He know, he understands people. He's been in the business a long time. He can handle the seller. But if I'm not getting anywhere, which happens sometimes that the person who's involved in the deal, they might've just stumbled upon it. They had a friend or a family member, somebody kind of kicked it to them. They don't really know what to do with it. I'll ask them to step aside and then I'll handle it just to keep the communication with less people in between of the game of telephone. But generally on a lot of the ones I've done recently, I haven't had to talk to the seller. Or if I do, I just say I'm a partner on the deal, which is true. You know, like there was a, an older couple that we just dealt with with the mobile home park we sold in South Carolina. And um, they were just old school, you know, like everything ha we have to drive there. We don't do anything virtually. We want to show the stuff. We've been managing the park forever. They didn't do really well with email. So it was just kind of keeping them in the loop and letting them know, you know, that they're afraid you're, you're, you're calling them out of nowhere. They don't even know where you got the number, but just being patient with them and letting them know, Hey, you know, I, I got a partner who's going to take this down. The loan's going to be in his name. He's going to be the person you're dealing with after this is all done. My role here is just getting this going and getting it to closing and then that's going to be the person that that's really taking it over. And they don't really ask too many questions at that point. You know, they're usually good with it. As long as you're moving forward, you're making things happen. I have found that they, they care less about what your role is and they care more about the fact that things look like they're moving and they're going to get paid soon. Well, it's been, it's been fascinating. It's really good. We're not done quite yet, but uh, I just want to say like, yeah, the, the whole idea of how you've transitioned, like as the markets changed, as strategies change, you just keep like, navigating this crazy real estate world going from, yeah, like the, every, everything from the flipping, the wholesaling, the rentals, the long distance stuff. Now the commercial stuff, uh, buying your own apartments, wholesaling them. Yeah. It's just, it's a cool, it's cool to see like the whole picture of a real estate investor's career. It's not just a deal by deal thing. It's like you are a real estate investor in a, in a, in a big sense. So very cool, man. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. 
Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're trying to close on your next rental. So why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers a targeted 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of net profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, are first in line to get paid. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of a physical asset mitigate downside risk. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by directing your funds from Wall Street to Main Street and supporting local economies. The investment is reserved for accredited investors. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com BP. pinefinancialgroup.com BP. Before we get to the deal deep dive, we have one question for you. As a black belt jujitsu person, how has that impacted? And you mentioned that in a kind of a, a connection earlier, but it, it, maybe there's there's no more than that. But is there any other ways that you can say like jujitsu has impacted your real estate? Oh yeah, I, you know I think it's definitely countless ways. You know I think jujitsu is probably aside from my accident been the the most defining thing in my life from the people I've met to the values it's taught. Just about hard work and dedication, but. I think the principle that you get for where I got from jujitsu in real estate is when things are tough, finding a way to stay calm, analyze the situation and figure a way out or exhaust all options until there literally is no way. Like if I'm going to tap out, it's going to be right before I'm about to go unconscious. I think that mentality and tenacity has helped me huge in business because again, every single day at some point in the day, 
I am being put in bad positions in business. You know, this one wants to back out of the deal. This one doesn't want to do the loan anymore. This one's mad at this one. And it's a matter of like, okay, my initial reaction is like, okay, I'm mad this person. I just spent, you know, 30, 60 days in this deal. I want to fire off. And it's like, no, no, no. You're going to waste your energy. Stay calm. See what they're going to do. You work around that. You wait for them to give you openings and you're going to find that little in and you're going to get in and you're going to get back on top and you're going to win. Like it's how bad do you want it? And I think that has just taught me countless, countless lessons in business for emotional maturity and just finding a way out and looking for solutions instead of just taking the easy way out. And um, on top of that, I think just being around so many professionals like, you know, we mentioned uh, Chris Weidman and seeing guys that are just champions that you train next to every day and seeing that. There's really no substitution for just time and hard work. And if you put it in, you'll get results. And I think that that has taught me a lot from the people around me that have encouraged me to keep going. And you see other people's successes and you see people that are getting their black belts and they're winning fights and they're winning championships, not because they were born like a rich or, or had some crazy circumstance. They got there by just, you know, not listening to people that said they can't do it or it was too hard or it wasn't for them, going after it, working hard for it every single day, showing up putting the time in and then just winning those small battles every day got you to win those big ones. And I think that's really what it's taught me is like all these things I get to talk about, like, you know, this land development deal and all those things that didn't happen by one big decision that happened by multiple decisions every single day, every single hour for years and years and years and years and years. And and that's what gets you on top. And I think that that's a huge lesson that I've been taught through jujitsu. Brandon, let me ask you, has your perspective on business changed since you started training? I don't know if I'd say perspective changed, but there's, there's similar to what Nick said, there's these little lessons that like, I'm like, oh, I totally see how this applies to real estate. Uh, I'm going to give you one example. One thing Jerry says, Jerry's our, uh, our kind of jujitsu instructor. He always says, get un- or get comfortable with being uncomfortable or get uncomfortable being in really like, you know, awkward, terrible kind of pain filled positions, because if you start to panic, that's when you start to you start to breathe heavier and everything. So it's like he always says he he starts by putting himself like whenever he does a, like a roll, he'll start in the worst position possible. Like where does he really not like to be? He doesn't he doesn't like to be on his back. And you know, okay, that's where he's gonna start because he wants to be comfortable, low pulse, breathing normal in that horrible position because that's when your brain can actually come up with good good decisions. And so I, I kind of apply that to like my real estate in terms of like things do go bad sometimes. There are deals that fall apart or whatever. So it's just a reminder like don't freak out get comfortable in these situations because this is where like the money's made uh just like in jujitsu so that's probably the biggest lesson what about you david i don't think i've done it long enough to (laughs) to be to be frank (laughs) that's all right one thing i'll say that i've learned like i I, i'm getting the point where i know what i don't know which is good I'm, i'm recognizing if i had any idea what to do here this would be different and something that clicked last night was that it's really a bunch of little tiny pieces and you learn a little piece at a time, like puzzle pieces. And at a certain point, I'm sure it's all going to click and you're going to actually have a puzzle. And business has been like that too, I would say. Real estate investing is very difficult. If you do uh, three out of the five things right, you make zero money. You have to get all five in order to make this work. And so when you're training in something new like jujitsu, you might do three things right. And then the fourth thing you don't, and that's all it took. And now someone takes your back and your result is you got choked out. And so it, you don't feel the progress happening. But it is happening if you're learning these things. And then when it does click, all of a sudden, boom, you're making 100 grand on a wholesale deal and you're this overnight success. So that's something that I've, it sort of strengthened my understanding of that is it's okay to just drill and drill and drill and drill and have faith that this is going to make you 
better and then when it all clicks it'll be fun it's not like it's going to be this linear path where oh i did this and now i'm going to have fun tomorrow no you're still going to get strangled it's going to be horrible and real estate feels like that all the time too but that that's why you got to keep going yeah and like and like you said there david like you you don't necessarily always feel like you're making progress, but you are making progress, just like in real estate, just like yeah. like and, and if but if it doesn't work, like you can't just show up and and do it, you know, do a martial art or do anything, right? For a, a day and then not show up again for a month and then try to do it again and then a month later you come back. Like it, and that's what so many people when they get into business or real estate investing, they do is they they get excited, they go and analyze a couple deals and then they're done. And then they come back a couple weeks later because inspiration strikes again and they, they do it again. And then they wait for inspiration to strike again. And it reminds me of what Stephen Pressfield said, uh, when we interviewed him is, uh, he said that quote about, you know, I only write when inspiration strikes. It's a good thing inspiration strikes every morning at 9 a.m. on my desk. <laughs> it's other words, like you show up regardless and do the work, do the drills over and over and over and over and over. And in real estate, that might mean you might have to analyze 50, 100, 200 deals before you make your first offer. And that might sound overwhelming, but it, do a couple every day for a month or two and you're there. And then you may need to go to a lot of open houses. You may need to go check out a lot of properties, talk to 50 agents, talk to 20 property managers. Those are the drills of a real estate investor, like a black belt real estate investor. Uh, and the more you drill, the more you practice, the more you try, the more offers you make, the more you're going to learn, the more you get tapped out. But then eventually you start tapping other people out and you start to win. So yeah, jujitsu has a lot of, uh, a lot of connections to the business world. It's cool stuff. All right, guys, let's shift gears here and head over to the world famous deal, deal deep. deep dive. All right, Nick, we're going to throw a, uh, the deal deep dive at you. This is a part of the show where we dive incredibly deep. No, not that deep into one of your deals. So tell us what thought you were having. No, uh, we want to we want to dive into the actual specifics, the math behind one of your properties. So is there a deal that we can pick apart here? You got something in mind? Absolutely. There's a deal we just did. Uh, I think we just closed on it last week. All right, perfect. So we're going to ask you like a series of uh, questions, kind of a quick co- co- question answer kind of section here. So first one, what type of deal is it and where, like what kind of property is it and where is it located? Single family home in the Chicago suburbs. How did you find this deal? This was an inbound lead from Facebook marketing. Facebook marketing. What what does that mean? Like uh, Facebook ads you're talking about or are you doing like other Facebook stuff? Yeah, Facebook ads, Facebook ads. Okay, very cool. Uh, how much was the property? How much did you buy it for? We bought it for 260. 260K, all right. And how did you negotiate that price? So they called us first. It was a, a probably back and forth for a few weeks of him just saying, hey, I, you know, I, I owe like over 280 on this, I can't take less than 300. And then us going back and saying like, well, you know, we're sorry, there's no way we can do that. And then like a month later, they'd call back and say, how about now? And they'd come down a little bit and a little bit. And eventually I was like, hey man, there's just no way I can do this for less than 255. And that it's, it's probably gonna be less than that when I actually dig in, in deeper to this deal. And he said, well, I think we're done talking here. You know, I, thanks for wasting my time. And he got really mad and hung up the phone and then called me back, you know, an hour later and was like, 260 and I was like let's do 260 and if something surfaces just be prepared that I might have to come down again and they were like okay great um and and you know so he told me no deal no way no how and then within a a few more phone calls all of a sudden we were right back to what I wanted anyway so it was interesting hey why did why did he go why did they sell to you and not to like just list it on the MLS in a market like this you know I I ask myself that all the time and I think it's so crazy 
Like you can get so in your head about like, why me? Why didn't they just do these things? But as they play it back, whatever it was about the Facebook ad, they seem to gravitate towards me for some reason. And then I think just having the conversations, like when we first started talking, we were just having a nice conversation. Maybe he appreciated that. Um, and then at the end of the day, their biggest thing was that they had moved and I think somebody else might have bailed on their deal and kind of left them hanging. And now they were paying double mortgages and they needed, they had this huge, massive house. And then after COVID and everything happened, now, you know, they have to figure out not only how to pay both mortgages, but now how to clean out the house because it was, I don't want to say a hoarder house, but it, it was, it was pretty close to that. There was just stuff everywhere. And it was like a 3000 square foot home with a full basement. And there was stuff all over this massive property it was on. So I was like, you know what? Like, I'll, I'll take it like that and I'll just move all this stuff out that you don't want. I'll get it thrown out. I'll get it cleaned out. And to them, that was the, the deal clincher for them. She was like, man, you have no idea how much stress that takes off my shoulders. The fact that you're willing to do that. So they literally went in and they did like a clean scrub of all the family stuff that they wanted to keep. And anything that was left, I was like, just give me the thumbs up when your stuff's out. I'll clean everything else out. You never have to worry about it again. You never have to show up at the house again. I'll take care of everything. And she was like, I owe you one. Thank you. Yeah, so that's awesome. That's awesome, man. Well, how'd you fund, how'd you fund the pro property? I uh, use private funds. So a hundred percent private funded. Um, again, you know, you have, uh, just people that are constantly saying like, Hey, you know, let me know when you have an opportunity. And, and then when you do and you make the money and you pay them back, they're almost as always somebody else that was watching. And now you have two people that go, Hey, I saw you, you paid Brandon back. I was waiting to see if he was going to get screwed over or not. He made money. I'd like to lend on the next one. So, you know, I just reached out to a few people. I had, you know, like anything, you can't get discouraged. I had a few people that say they were in and then switched the terms last minute and then they were out. And then a couple of people that said they had the money. And then last minute they were like, I didn't get paid back from the deal. I thought I was going to close. And then I got somebody that was like, send me the wiring instructions. So, you know, out of 10 people, I only needed one. So we got that funded with private funds and, uh, went pretty well. And, and they're looking to do more now. All right. So what did you do with this property? So initially I was like, I'm going to wholesale this to an investor who wants to fix and flip it. And again, it's just so funny the way you look at the market and just try and find what's happening because right now there's just no inventory. So I was like, all right, well, investors were telling me when I was floating out the numbers during the negotiation, there's not enough spread. There's not enough spread. You know, I can't buy it. I can't buy it. And I'm going, looks like it's a pretty good deal to me, but you know what? Like maybe if we just clean it out and throw it on the MLS and see what we can get for it, I'll kind of take whatever. I have it at 260. If I can get 280 for it, I'm happy. I only figured I was going to make like 15, 20 grand on it. And all of a sudden a, a comp popped up and uh, my partner's talking to me and she's like, I don't understand why you keep saying like this 280 number. She's like, look at this comp. And there was literally like six houses down, smaller, crappier, worse location, smaller lot, no pool, three, like 80, 390, something like that. And it had just sold. So I was like, huh. And it's not fixed up. It's not. So I was like, well, do you think we can get that? So I started calling a bunch of realtors in the area and I was like, yeah, you know, I have this deal. What would you list it at? If we were just going to throw an open house this weekend, all I'm going to do is clean it out. It's not going to be fixed up at all. And they were like, oh, you can easily get like 360, 370, 380. And I was like, throw it on the market for 370 and let's just see like, I'll be happy if somebody comes in now at 300. And sure enough, by like 9 a.m. Monday, we had an offer at 380. 9.30, we wow. had an offer at like 390 with an escalation, escalation clause up to 410. And like closing in like two and a half weeks. I was like, that worked out really well. Wow. So, I mean, I, I went in, we cleaned it out. We cleaned it up. Probably cost five grand between the dumpsters and the cleanup crew. So, we're all into it for like 265 and sold it for 390 in like three weeks.
I will say, I think in today's market where we are right now in 2021, people should expect to see this a lot more often. I think the amount of stimulus that's been printed and the lack of supply, if you think about the fact houses have not been built for a really long time, that you're going to see really big jumps in comparable sales. Like one sale could happen that could increase the comp of your house by a hundred grand relatively easily in today's market. And so I just want to bring that up that for a long time, home prices were just very kind of steadily. That's how it usually works, right? They just creep, 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 and then they crash. Well, we're seeing... uh, geometric progression as far as home prices. So uh, now we know also why the seller was a little irritated. Like, <laughs> thanks for wasting my time because he's looking at his house like it's worth 360. But this is a great, great thing to highlight for anyone else who's got a deal that they're looking at or they don't want to pay over asking price or they have a chance to land something. Take that last minute to go look up last comps or talk to a realtor and just say, hey, what are you seeing in the, in the market? Because I think this is going to happen much more often than it used to. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> So what was the final outcome then? What was the final profit at the end of the day? You know, there's some realtor commissions on there that I think came out to like, I think I paid the guy like eight grand in realtor commissions, about $5,000 to fix it up. I paid the private lenders 1% because it was only for a month. So um, it was a gross of 130, but we probably came right around 100. Yeah, that's awesome. Six figure flip. Uh, it's kind of like a wholetail in a way. It, it, exactly. Like, yeah, it was a yeah. wholetail. And, and it completely yeah. restructured my business model because I was like, man, I don't want to have to babysit contractors for you know, 30, 60, 90 days on yeah. a heavy rehab when I can like literally get it just show ready and sell it to somebody who's just looking for a home and they'll, they'll make their husband or wife fix it up on the weekends. Okay. So other than I don't have to do the rehab, did you learn any other lessons on the deal? Yeah. You know, it was the first time that I, that, that was the biggest one to me. It was just kind of, you know, looking through and realizing that there's a whole other buyer's pool. So just because it doesn't work for an investor who might be taking it as a cash flow property or a fix and flip doesn't mean that it's not a deal because you can still get it market ready for like a a, a primary homeowner. So that was a big thing that I, I look at all my deals now when I'm running the numbers. I go, okay, does this work as a deal I can wholesale to an investor? Does this look as a, a deal I can wholesale to a flipper? Or does this look like something I can just clean up and wholesale and throw it on the MLS? And I try and weigh out all those options to see what's going to make me the most amount of money in the least amount of time. Um, but it also taught me that you... You overthink things. I mean, how many people I, I call or I have my team call every day that's gotten 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 other calls from people and your immediate thought is, I'll never get a deal because there's 40, 50 other people that this person's calling. Same thing happened to this guy, but for whatever reason, it was just my day. And he said yes to me that day. And I think that's kind of what the game is, is you know, everybody's going to have a lot of no's, but you're going to have those days that for whatever reason, they are going to say yes to you. And it's just a matter of staying persistent and staying in the game until you get that yes and just plowing through the nose makes it worth it. Well, let's move on toward the end of the show. Before we get to the uh, famous four, though, I'm wondering what's next for you? Where do you see your real estate headed? And how can our, uh, like, what are you looking for? What can our audience bring you? So we're um, about to sell off this land development out here that we have a cell tower on, which is pretty cool. But um, as for your audience, you know, if you guys are looking for um, multifamily, whether it's small multifamily, large multifamily, or mobile home parks, and you're looking for somebody to help you just make that process a little less scary, feel a little bit more efficient and have a, you know, an honest set of eyes to help you analyze it and put those teams together and figure out if it's a good fit. And if it's not, find you something that is. That's definitely the the best value that I provide right now is uh, just helping people get into multifamily and mobile home parks. Very cool. With that said, let's get to the end of the show. This is our last segment. It's called Our Famous Four. This is the part of the show where we ask the same four questions to every guest every week. So we're going to throw them at you. Number one. Do you have a current favorite real estate-related book or all-time favorite real estate-related book? 
It's not 100% real estate related. It's the Uriah Faber book. I think it's called Laws of the Ring or Laws of the Cage, but it taught me a business lesson and he is a real estate investor. So I'm going to try and say that it counts. Sure. But um, one of the things he said in it that's helped me huge in my real estate business was that they asked him to go and do a speech when his dad was like getting his 19 year sober pin. And they said, hey, can you please come and talk about the times when your dad was drinking and all these bad things were happening? And he goes, no, I can't. But if you want me to show up and talk about all the good times when he wasn't, I'm happy to do that. And that like mentality, just the switch of like, I have a choice to focus on like the good or the bad. And like, that's what I'm going to highlight and focus on. Help me in business. Because again, you start to go, I can spend my whole day saying all day long, I had these bad things go wrong with my deals. Or I could say at the end of the day, I had some good things happen. And it's just keeping your, your mind right for business to keep you going for like the next thing and the next thing and the next thing to get that deal past the finish line. That book taught me to embrace that and focus on the positive. What about a favorite business book? I would say the Gary Keller, The One Thing, um, just because focus has been a massive problem for me. And every time I start to think about going into something else, I just remember opening up to that first page where it says, chase two rabbits, catch none. And I'm like, this mm -hmm. is, needs to be my lesson every single day. I need to read that page. And that, that's been really big for keeping me on track. So good. <laughs> so good. That's going to be on your tombstone someday. Brandon Turner. So good. Yeah. So All right. Good. Uh, what about hobbies? Brazilian jiu-jitsu, eating pizza, and playing with my dog. Have you managed to do all three of those at the same time? <laughs> well, my dog will never let me eat. If there's any pizza around and he's around, he's going to be wanting that. But no, uh, okay. I, have, I haven't managed to, uh, to multitask. Rolling with your dog over who gets the pizza. That's how <laughs> yes, you'd have to yeah. put all three that, together. That, that's pretty accurate, yeah. Uh, what kind of dog do you got? Uh, he's a little bit of a mutt. He's a rescue dog during Hurricane Sandy. He's a little like 30-pound brown mix, but he's awesome. His name's Ralph. Last question for me. What do you think sets apart successful real estate investors from all those who give up, fail, or never get started? I, you know, I think it's the same principles like we talked about with jujitsu. I think people look at real estate or business and they go, I want something better out of life. I want more money. I want more time. And then they start and they go, oh, this is hard. This takes work. This is going to be not as easy as I thought it was going to be. And then when they get put in those tough spots or they have those those lumps that they get taken or they get put in those bad positions, they quit and they go, you know, what? I'm just going to try and find something else that's easier. So, I'm, you know, I'm going to play the lottery. And I think the people that can take a breath and stay calm and not keep jumping from from business to business or or whatever the thing they're chasing is when things get hard is the key to success. It's, you know, sticking with something when it gets hard, finding ways to find solutions in places and then taking those solutions and those lessons you've learned onto the next venture and the next deal and the next deal and the next deal. And you kind of build up your muscle memory, your Rolodex. But I think that's really all it is. I think people quit when things get tough. And I think if you can learn not to and stay tenacious and persistent, you'll find success in everything. Man, you just gave me chills. I, I just realized that is the source of so much frustration in my life right now is I've got these goals, business goals, relationship goals, fitness goals, whatever. And I believe exactly what you said. Take what you learned at this era of life, apply it into this world. You'll be more successful. You'll be like a snowball that keeps picking up steam as it goes down the hill. And then you get this more momentum. And the people that are in that are working for me are involved in these goals that have the a different attitude, which is let me just go find something easier. Right. I don't want to do that. Let me just where's the next magic pill that I could go take that's gonna make this happen? I'm constantly clashing with them. And I just, you saying that all of a sudden, like put a light bulb off in my head, that that's really what my problem is, is I just need to get people around me to think like you do, 
that are like, oh, we hit an obstacle. What can we do to get over this? Instead of, oh, there's an obstacle. Let me go look for something that doesn't have obstacles. And then you end up in a $9 an hour job and you're trying to figure out a way to make a million bucks at it. <laughs> doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work. <laughs> All right. Last question of the day. Thank you very much for this, Nick. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, so if you go to uh, nicknicknick.com slash links, uh, my website's www.nicknicknick.com. But if you go to slash links, it's got all the ways to listen to the A-Game podcast and to find me on all social media. And um, if anybody's interested in the due diligence stuff I do to help out, I made a, a due diligence checklist of all the things you can do to bring more value to your buyers. If you're selling properties, the same things I do. I made a free checklist for anybody listening. If you go to nicknicknick.com slash biggerpockets, uh, it will be on there for free. So hopefully it can help you uh, get some more people that want to buy deals from you and you can stop giving like you said, there's a lot of bad wholesalers out there. So the more good ones out there will, will help the business as a whole. Man, I appreciate it. This has been a phenomenal show. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your uh, your wisdom and your strategies and your your story. It's been really, uh, it's been fun. So thank you. I appreciate it. I know, David, you said uh, just to give Chris Weidman a shout before we uh, tapped out. Please keep him in your prayers, everybody. Chris is going through a pretty gnarly recovery. I'm incredibly impressed with his attitude, both with how he handled it when it happened. I mean, the, me the measure of composure Chris had, he had a very... Very gnarly, uh, broken bone in a, in a fight that he was just in and then how he's been documenting his recovery. So a lot of respect for Chris, please keep him and his family in your prayers. And thank you, Nick, for bringing that up. Thanks for having me guys. This was awesome. It really, uh, I love everything you're doing and it's really an honor to be on. Thanks man. This is David Green for Brandon. Get comfortable, be an uncomfortable Turner signing off. You're listening to bigger pockets radio, simplifying real estate for investors, large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.